Welcome to our weekly Catechism class. This lesson is a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help us to learn Christian doctrine with a warm and a practical application. Every lesson has an accompanying study guide. The web link to find that guide is in the episode notes. Now, let's start the class and learn the lessons. So, welcome to our weekly catechism class. We're still reading and learning from Lord's Day 14 in the Heidelberg Catechism. In our last class, we read and answered question 35 about the virgin conception and birth of our wonderful Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We learned that we cannot overlook this doctrine or be indifferent to it. And we discovered something of how that birth took place, comparing the work of the Holy Spirit at creation with his work at the conception of Christ, where he overshadowed the womb of the Virgin Mary, bringing life where there had been none, breathing divine life so that the baby which was born in Bethlehem was both fully God and fully man, like us, in every way, but with one important exception, he did not sin. Now because his conception was not from a man, he did not inherit Adam's sinful nature, as we all do. He completely fulfilled the law of God, he was perfectly obedient, and thus he pleased God the Father. Now all of that sounds really theoretical and abstract. We know that the virgin birth was an historical event, we know that it took place in Palestine over 2,000 years ago. But the implications of that birth affect every single one of us today. We benefit from Christ's birth. The question is how. The practical application of the doctrine of the virgin birth is what we will look at in this lesson. I'm Bob McAvoy and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. In Lord's Day 14, question 36, our instructor asks the question, What benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? The answer we must give is that he is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sin, in which I was conceived and born. Because of Jesus' sinless conception and birth, we benefit from having a mediator. So we want to find out what a mediator is, and what a mediator does, and how he does it. Let's start to learn about Jesus, our mediator. So I've probably talked to you before about an organisation back in the 70s known as ACAS. ACAS was the Advisory Conciliation and Arbitration Service. They're still around, maybe not just so much in the news these days. But back during the miners' strikes in the time of Margaret Thatcher, ACAS was on everyone's lips. They were constantly on the news. There was a huge gulf between the government and the workers. 
the UK government was systematically closing down the coal industry, claiming that it was no longer efficient, claiming that it was beyond repair. But the economic arguments for closure had to be weighed against the societal impacts. Whole communities had grown up around the pits, little villages and towns with social structures and family units and socially cohesive groups and... As the mines closed and the income from the industry dried up, all these little communities were destroyed. People moved away to find work in faceless cities. Families were split up and communities ripped apart. And there were protests. And there were mass walkouts. And there were strikes in solidarity with the miners all across the working classes. There was violence and Our screens were filled with images of policemen and protesters in violent confrontations. The government versus the working people of the nation. There were poles apart. Who could stand between them? Who could act as a go-between, an honest broker, respected by both sides? Who could bring some calm to the situation and perhaps even broker a resolution? That task fell to ACAS, the advisory conciliation and arbitration service. They were called upon to be the much-needed mediator. Now that industrial dispute and that unrest was a terrible time for the United Kingdom. There was a huge gulf between the government and the people. But imagine that dispute and that unrest on a global, no, probably a universal scale. Not just between a government and a workforce, but between the God who created us and who establishes in his word how we are to live in order to please him. And the whole of the human race who have rejected what God has laid out for their benefit. There's a massive gulf between God and man. And quite honestly, it's a gulf that we have no hope of bridging on our own. In the book of Job, The author is lamenting about this great unbridgeable gap in chapter 9. In great distress, he realises that God is beyond the reach of sinful human beings. He complains about how swiftly life is passing him by, each day passing like fast ships. He could, I suppose, just ignore his condition like many do today, trying not to think of the certain day when they will be required to give account before the God whom they have so greatly offended by their sins. But Job knows this is pointless. It won't change the fact that before God he is a guilty sinner, and that makes him afraid, as well it should. Open your Bible and read Job chapter 9, verse 25 to verse 29. In verse 25 it says, Now my days are swifter than a post. They fly away, they see no good. They are passed away as the swift ships, as the eagle that hasteth to the prey. If I say I will forget my complaint, I will leave off my heaviness and comfort myself. I am afraid of all my sorrows. I know that thou wilt not hold me innocent. If I be wicked, why then labour I in vain? So you might ask, why doesn't he just do something about it? Why does Job not simply clean up his life? Why does he not make a fresh start? Why does he not make a determined effort to be a better person? Now there's the difficulty. Job realises that he can't. If you read Job 9 and verse 30, it says, If I wash myself with snow water, 
and make my hands never so clean, yet shalt thou plunge me in the ditch, and mine old clothes shall abhor me. As a willful sinner, Job was unable to do anything to improve his standing before God. For as he confesses, God is not like us. Job 9 and verse 32, For he is not a man, as I am, that I should answer him, and that we should come together in judgment. Now we reach the interesting and important part of Job's lament. He cannot find anyone to arbitrate between himself and God. He needs a mediator. The authorised version refers to it as a des man. He says in verse 35, Neither is there any des man betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both. The Amplified Bible puts it like this, There is no arbitrator between us who could lay his hand upon us both, would that there were. Job rightly identifies that he needs someone else. Someone who can stand between God and man. Someone who is one of us, and yet someone who can enter into God's presence and plead our case on our behalf. Someone who, when he goes to intercede for us, would not be consumed by the terrible wrath of God upon sinners. Job realises that he can't be that man. Neither can you or me. And that's why Judgment Day is such a fearful prospect for those who would go before God without Christ. Job concludes his lament in Job 9 verse 34 and 35. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not his fear terrify me. Then would I speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. At this point, we leave Job in despair, with no one to bridge the gap between man and God. But wait, God himself has provided a mediator. Jesus is our day's man. First Timothy chapter 2 verse 5 to 6 tells us there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. He's our mediator. He's our day's man. Now how does that benefit us? Well, the first way that we are benefited by having a mediator between us and God is that there is an establishing of a connection. One of the very first things that ACAS had to do, or any other conciliation organisation, is to try and start a dialogue between the disparate parties in the dispute. But in the dispute between God and man, such a dialogue is impossible, as Job discovered. That's because God simply cannot approach the sinner. In Habakkuk 1 and verse 13, it tells us that God is of purer eyes than to behold evil, that he can't look on iniquity. If a sinful man or woman was to attempt to enter the presence of God, God's blinding holiness, his light would overwhelm them. It would crush them. It would destroy them in their sin. So we need someone to establish a dialogue, someone who can establish an intercourse between God and man, someone who is equal with God and at the same time is one of us, equal with man. There's only one man, and that mediator is Christ, the God-man, fully God and fully man. I wonder, have you read the story in the Old Testament about Jacob's ladder? 
Who or what do you think that ladder represents? Well, here's a clue. Everything in the Old Testament points us to Jesus. Yes, Jacob's dream was of a ladder between heaven and earth, with the angels ascending and descending, a way for man to reach God, a way for God to reach man. That way is Christ. There is no other way. Jesus' birth benefits us by establishing that connection, that ladder between God and mankind. So the first benefit is that in the birth of Christ, a connection is established. There is someone, as Job hoped for, that could put a hand upon us both. The second benefit is that he becomes our sufficient substitute. Our catechist puts this so well when he says, with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sin. You see, God is always just. Colossians 3 and verse 25, He that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. Sin must be appropriately punished, or God would not be just. Revelation chapter 20 verse 12 and 13 tells us about that judgment. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. Remember, all of our works, all of our righteousness is just filthy rags in the sight of God. Don't be thinking that you'll do good works and please God. But Jesus perfectly kept the law, was perfectly holy, so that when he died on the cross, it was not for any sin or crime that he had committed. It was to take upon himself God's terrible wrath for the sins of the whole world. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 3 and 4, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son, in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And you know there's enough merit in his atoning death to blot out in the sight of God all the sins of every sinner in every age. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He died as our substitute. His death is sufficient. Be clear in this though. Although his death is sufficient to cover all of our sins, it is only efficient for those who come to God through him his elect people. So a Christian poet wrote, My sins are the bliss of this glorious thought. My sins, not in part but the whole, are nailed to his cross, and I bear them no more. Praise the Lord, O my soul. So our mediator benefits us. We've seen that he benefits us by establishing a connection 
between God and us. By becoming our sufficient substitute at the cross. And the third benefit we receive is that he sustains us in our times of weakness. We live in a broken, sin-cursed world. Everything around us, even we ourselves, we are wrecked by Adam's sin and by the fall of man. Christians are not exempt from this. We toil with hard labour. We have to earn our living. Our womenfolk travail in birth at childbirth. Weeds attack our crops and our plants and our vegetables. Pestilence and disease destroys our lives and destroys our livelihoods. And we suffer illness and pain and sorrow and loss and depression and bereavement and death. Just like everyone else who lives in this post-fall world. For everything that God made and everything that God was pleased with at creation is ruined and groaning and creaking, awaiting its redemption at the very last day. The difference is that the Christian has Christ, our mediator, because he is Emmanuel, God with us. Because he is a man, he knows what we are going through. Jesus suffered as we suffer while he was on this earth. He hungered and he thirsted, and he was tired and he needed rest. He suffered the awful pain of the lashes that whipped the skin and flesh off his back. He suffered as the cruel nails were driven home as the cross was raised, and he suffered inexplicable pain, and he died. And the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us, and was touched with all the feelings of our infirmity. Now when we suffer, he pleads for us. He's our intercessor, before the throne of God, that he is the God-man who knows every pain that we bear and who cares and who sustains us and who gives us the hope that one day like him we will be in a place where there will be no more pain or sorrow or tears or parting. We are looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Hebrews 12, 2-3 There is one more. A fourth benefit. Jesus, our mediator, elevates our fallen status. We are by nature the children of wrath. The Catechist emphasizes the difference between our sinful birth and conception and the holy conception and birth of Jesus when he speaks of my sin in which I was conceived and born. What a difference. Yet Jesus has restored our standing before God. Paul talks about him as being the second Adam. He came into this world to undo what the first Adam has done. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 21 to verse 23, 
we read, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus takes our sin, and he restores us to a right relationship with God, and he raises us to new life, and he brings us into God's family, and he gives us a new second paradise in heaven, so that everything that Adam destroyed is renewed in Christ. Four great benefits. So the question is, what benefits do you get? from Christ's holy conception and birth. You get something you could never have otherwise. You get a mediator, a God-man, one who can establish a connection between the God who is terribly offended by our sin and helpless, hopeless, condemned sinners. One who, as God, has made sufficient atonement for all our sins. One who, as man, knows when we are suffering and comforts us and consoles us, and one who has lifted us up out of the filth and the mire of sin and has given us a new status before God. Hallelujah. What a saviour. <laughs>